My name is Lisa Moore, and this is State of the Arts. State of the Arts at Memorial Humanities and Social Sciences. Analysis whip smart and professorial smart. People talk about what they know best. Listen to Lisa as she brings them all together, and we try to figure out how to live together better with fat stacks of research. Found to impress, so let's talk about the faculty of HSS. Welcome to State of the Arts, a podcast exploring the humanities and social sciences, broadcasting from Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. I'm Lisa Moore, and I'm a writer, visual artist, and an associate professor in Memorial's English department. I talk to faculty members about the critical role of their work in understanding our changing world and the practices of living together well. Hi everyone, welcome to State of the Arts. This is a show about exploring the humanities and social sciences here at Memorial University of Newfoundland. We chat with a variety of faculty members about their work and how the issues addressed in their teaching and research are critical to understanding our changing world. My name is Lisa Moore and I am very pleased to introduce our guest, uh, Associate Professor of English, Dr. Fiona Pollock. Fiona's research includes petrocultures and the cultural figuration of islands. Fiona grew up in Australia and attended the University of Tasmania, where she attained a PhD in English. Her thesis was entitled Literal Fictions, Writing Tasmania and Newfoundland. She came to Memorial in 2007. In addition to her roles as teacher and researcher, Fiona is also an academic editor of ICER Books, Memorial's scholarly press. Um, Welcome, Fiona. Thank you. I just want to say also that it's my birthday. <laughs> I want to say thank you to Mark Shallow and Janet Heron, and also uh, Chelsea, who uh, was at Chopper's Drug Mart very early this morning and agreed to do my makeup. <laughs> so, uh, Fiona, it's a real pleasure to have you here. And I want to just tell everybody that we first met in Tasmania because I was uh, also thinking about Newfoundland and Tasmania and the um, comparisons between those two places. And you were, uh, I was given your name as the uh, expert in this. The only expert in this at that point. <laughs> so why did you bring together Newfoundland and Tasmania? What did you, how, how do they compare? Um, I guess I started focusing on Tasmania when I started my PhD and I was just interested in why there was suddenly all this writing about this place. And it was a place that people that lived there um, hadn't really written that much about. And in the course of doing that, I became aware that, that similar things were going on in Newfoundland. And actually thinking back on it, I think it was actually Annie Prue's The Shipping News that brought Newfoundland to my attention. So obviously she wasn't a Newfoundlander, but someone writing about Newfoundland. And suddenly there was an appetite for books about these places. So I started comparing them and thinking about that. And what did you, what comparisons did you see? I think at that moment, so this is sort of like in the late 90s, and um, it was this moment of globalization and postmodernism and all these things in Tasmania and Newfoundland kind of came to represent havens from that. In a lot of ways, I think there was a sort of people wanting this idea that you could go back to something that was truer and more authentic. And you know, certainly the shipping news is absolutely all about that. So I got interested in in that, and then became aware too that there were you know different kinds of narratives 
going on, including your own, <laughs> around, you know, trying to challenge that too and think about these places as also places where there's a lot of coming and going and, and you know, it's not just one solitary thing. I think the other thing that was really crucial then is they were both quite economically depressed places. Mm -hmm. Tasmania's kind of changed a lot in Newfoundland up and down since then, but that had a real bearing on the way other parts of the countries kind of looked down on these islands that were seen as sort of backwaters. And I mean, just, there are quite a lot of things to talk about around that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's a real comparison to be made because Tasmania is an island and Newfoundland's yeah. an island on uh, just like on the periphery of a major country. And um, so one of the things I'm, I'm interested in now is the history that you guys have uh, in Tasmania with, well, first of all, I want to say that when I drove into Hobart, mm -hmm. even though it's a tropical place and there's... Tropical, but yeah, well, it's there's, warmer than here. <laughs> yes, but there's weird plants compared to, well, plants even. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, strange animals and for, for people from Newfoundland. Um, but I felt like uh, Hobart had just so much in common with with St. John's. It mm. felt like I was driving into St. John's, except for the the foliage was different, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, I think there is a sensibility among the people that felt very similar to me. Mm -hmm. But I'm also really thinking about the history that y you guys have with hydro dams. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have Muskrat Falls and mm -hmm. Churchill Falls. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the hydro dams and and your own uh, youthful <laughs> activism against hydro dams in Tasmania. Um, yeah, in the, I guess, growing up in Tasmania in the 70s and the 80s, but particularly by the time we got to the 80s. <laughs> um, well, look, no, actually, let's backtrack. Starting in the 70s, there was a place called Lake Pedder in the southwest wilderness of Tasmania that uh, was this absolutely beautiful, pristine glacial lake with this amazing fine quartz, rose, sand, beach. It was this sort of absolutely exquisite place. And the decision was made to put in a dam and essentially drown the lake and make it a lot bigger. And it was, that sort of prompted the beginnings of environmental activism. I mean, not that there hadn't been any, but it really kind of catalyzed environmental act activism in, in Tasmania. And that fight was lost, that initial fight in the 1970s, and Lake Pedder was submerged. And this was all part of a, that kind of post-Second World War industrialization process that was happening, I guess, in Newfoundland and in Tasmania and other parts of Australia and Canada as well. Like, let's make these enormous projects that will provide all this electricity to power all our factories and be able, you know, to let us do all these things. So the, the battle to save Lake Pedder was lost, but in the process of that, the world's first Green Party was formed, the United Tasmania wow. Group. <laughs> yes. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And, and it meant too that by the time we got to the early 1980s, when there were now new suggestions to put in new dams, there was a organization, like there was sort of the infrastructure, the sort of activist infrastructure to, to get involved against trying to stop that. And so I guess I was like 11, 12, 13 when this was all going on. And there was a massive divide in the community in Tasmania between people who were in favor of this dam on the Franklin River and people who were not. And it was very bitterly fought. And um, I guess there were big marches and a blockade of the river. And so 6,000 people went and put their bodies on the line wow. to try and stop the bulldozers that were coming in to, to destroy uh, this really beautiful place in, in the Southwest Wilderness area. And the state government, well, 
changed a few times, but Robin Gray was the premier who was really gung-ho, let's, let's do this thing. And the federal government also changed a few times. But by the time Bob Hawke was elected, he was like, no, we're not going to do this thing. And in fact, that helped him get elected because it quickly became a national issue. Yeah, so there was a lot of, a lot of protest against it. And eventually it came to a high court decision that stopped the dam. So this was sort of the relief after the Lake Pedder situation. And then by that point, there was a Green Party in Tasmania and not that long afterwards, they had five members of parliament and not that long afterwards, there was an Australian Green Party. Wow. And so, yeah, it was a very, very important moment in Australian history, really. And you're, you're well, you're, you're a very um, interdisciplinary scholar, but you began with literature, is that right? Yes, I guess so. Although I was yeah, I had one supervisor who was a cultural studies supervisor and one supervisor who was sort of historian, literary, and I was doing all kinds of other things at the same time, so yeah. So what was the role of artists and writers in that, um, even, and academics, I guess, mm -hmm. even, after it, even if it came later, what, what yeah. role did those uh, people play in this, in this building of a, of a green government? Um, I think an enormous role, and particularly photographers. There were actually two photographers that were really important. There was one involved with the Lake Pedder um, campaign called Allegus Tricanus. Um, I think he was a Lithuanian migrant to Tasmania. And then by the time the Franklin River uh, thing came around, um, Peter Dombrovskis. And Peter Dombrovskis did this amazing book called Wild Rivers that were all these photographs just of the Franklin River, but a lot of people hadn't actually seen that place because it's very isolated and sort of off the beaten track. And it just brought it into the national consciousness, actually. And in fact, the Wilderness Society, that was one of the groups campaigning against the dam, took out full page ads in the national newspapers featuring this particular image called Rock Island Bend. And it's just like this iconic image now. Of? Of, of the river. So yeah, partway down the river, it's just stunning. Kind so of, the power of art really. Yeah, it really had a big role to play there. But you. I think that there were drawings or indigenous drawings that eventually... Yeah, well, yeah, so art in terms of the environmental campaign, but an another thing that was hugely important that helped get the high court decision to go the way that it did was the sort of publicizing of the fact that there, were, there was cave art on, on uh, the Franklin River. The indigenous people had been there for a very long time and had um, made these exquisite drawings um, again along the river in these places that not many people had got to. So part of the, the case for not drowning the river was to protect um, that art. Yeah, and of course in Muskrat Falls, there are burial grounds that the yeah. indigenous people are very uh, upset about losing once you know, the flooding is completed. Yeah. Um, but that gives us a, a good segue into this book, which is called uh, Tracing Ochre. And this is an edited collection of essays mm -hmm. and it's about the Beothic. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about the title and just tell me what, what brought you to this book? Yeah, and the thing that brought me to that book was the Tasmanian Newfoundland connection and in the course of doing my PhD realizing that there were these settler colonial histories in these two places that were just uncannily resonant <laughs> and um, realizing too like we, when we're in Newfoundland when we're in Tasmania too we have, there's such a sort of strong sense of local identity in these places mm -hmm. and this sort of 
tendency to forget that there are these other wider forces that connect us with other places. And British imperialism was absolutely one of those forces. And we're still, you know, obviously trying to work our way through the legacies of that. But there was a particular woman in uh, Tasmanian Aboriginal woman called uh, Truganini, and she was seen as the last of the Tasmanian Aborigines. She died in 1876. And of course, Shana Dithit died in 1829. And there's this very similar process that happened of settlers kind of latching onto the idea that, right, we draw a line now, like, oh, and now it's possible to lament the fact that supposedly there aren't indigenous people on these islands anymore, which is very convenient. And now we can write nice poetry about it and we can you know, feel guilt-ridden about it and all the rest of it. But in both places, obviously, indigenous presence was still there. And that's what's become more and more apparent to the wider community, I guess, since the 1970s and, and uh, activism that, that sort of brought that to, to public attention, but a long fight to bring that into full focus. So really what this book is positing is that uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that the Beothic are not extinct. And even, even really questioning that, the idea of extinction and looking at um, how cultures uh, between different indigenous groups might cross and, and cross-fertilize and, um, you know, people, tell me, tell me about that. Yeah, we kind of, there's a lot of contributors in that book and people take different lines on the other uh, Beothic extinct question, I think. And, and, in the, and in the introduction to the book, I say that, that that's not actually, we're not trying to say definitely one way or the other, but we're trying to trouble that question because when you start just even asking that question, then suddenly everything looks a little bit different. Suddenly the, the notion of the settler culture, permanence in a place looks a bit different, who owns the place, who belongs here and all that, it opens up in a different kind of way. That's right, because yeah. when, when, if we find ourselves saying that a particular group of people uh, have become extinct, which is an yeah, unpleasant a word. Term. It's yes, very it, unpleasant it's a, term. Yeah, yeah very yeah. difficult, yeah. incorrect yeah. terminology. Um, when we start to think that way, mm. then we sort of allow ourselves to believe, well, this place must be ours. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's absolutely what that book is designed to try and question and in different kinds of ways. And when the book came out, when I know that in 2013, there was a response to the book. Uh, no, the book didn't come out till last year. So No, but, oh, okay. So yeah. in 2013, there yeah. was... 2013, um, there was some coverage locally, well, and nationally too, of um, Chief Mizzou Joe's comments that, you know, that they'd been in a marriage between the Beothic and the Mi'kmaq and, you know, sort of positing the Beothic kind of survive through the, through the Mi'kmaq. And um, yeah, so that, that caught national attention and, uh, and Miss L talks about those things in, in Tracing Oka too. Perfect. Um, so let's let's talk about now because you know we're I, I can see in your work a, a beautiful connection about images images in in the uh, in relationship to the way we imagine in, indigenous people and also uh, the way we imagine environmental activism and and then you have just published a piece uh, about the ocean ranger and you've done a lot of work on oil so. Um, can you talk about your, 
your piece on the Ocean Ranger is really about an archive of, of photographs that have recently been donated to the rooms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what is that archive? Yeah, so 2015, three albums were donated to the Provincial Archives and they were by men who worked, or the photographs taken by men who worked on the Ocean Ranger and they're, the men have quite different stories. So one of them, David Boucher, died when the rig um, capsized in 1982 in a fierce winter storm um, with the loss of 80, 84, I think, lives. 84 men, yeah, yeah, 84 men, and many, many of them Newfoundlanders, and David Boucher was one of those men. Um, Lloyd Major was a medic and a radio operator on the Ocean Ranger, but his shift ended a couple of days before um, the, the sinking. And then uh, Lance Butler just had visited briefly as a contractor um, earlier on. So n Lloyd Major was the only one who actually had permission to take photographs on the rig. And uh, it sounds true from having talked to the archivists at the rooms that there are other uh, collections of images out there that, that there were a lot of people maybe taking photographs on the rig. And, so that's a yeah. peculiar thing. So people mm. were not allowed to take cameras no. on. And what would happen if, if they were caught with a camera? Well, I'm not, not sure what the, the story was in the Ocean Ranger, given that there obviously were a lot of <laughs> cameras floating around. But, but that persists now and is, is maybe even more stringently upheld now, this, this sort of policing of what images we can see of the offshore. And uh, that's why I got so interested in those albums, because even now they are an incredibly rare um, they give you incredibly rare insight into what is it like to work offshore. Like, what what do you see, and what what are, what's the what are the social circumstances out there? And, and you get a sense of that from uh, from these amazing collections. And and you've talked about how uh, you know because we were talking about islands all the way through, and a rig is like an island. Mm. And those men, when they were on those rigs, were living a kind of domestic life that was yeah. that was very enclosed. Mm -hmm. um, what happened when you looked at those pictures? What? How did they make you feel? And what did they? What did they? What kind of insights did you have when you saw them? Um, oh, a lot of different things, I guess. And they're really poignant. <laughs> they're really poignant because. Yeah, it's this lost world. I mean, we know what's going to happen to the people in those pictures. We're looking at them from this point in the future, looking looking back at them. A lot, and a lot of the pictures too are quite, uh, particularly in the Lloyd Major collection, they're quite sort of jokey or they're they're light. There's a lightheartedness to them, and you know that. And it's particularly after the Royal Commission happened, after the sinking of the Royal of the Ocean Ranger, that just revealed the just terrible kind of corporate negligence and regulatory negligence and all of these things that, that these men, they look really innocent in, yeah, the, in those Because images. they don't know what's coming and neither yeah. did anyone on shore because the Ocean Ranger was believed to be unsinkable. Yes, yes. And so there's a kind of, uh, well, in some of the photographs, there's mm -hmm. a sort of playfulness and... Yeah, that's, that's right. And yeah. what, about, what about like, um, well, just compare for me then those images with the corporate photographs mm. that, that that are condoned by oil companies. Yeah, well, corporate photography is usually sort of emphasizes the monumentality of the rigs, the technological sophistication of the rigs. There's a big emphasis on safety. There's a big emphasis on people wearing hard hats and and 
you know, full-on safety gear, gender balance. You'll have a woman next to a man, kitted out and on the safety gear on a, on a, on a platform. Um, often the aesthetics are really striking, so uh, beautiful colours and and you know lighting and all those sorts of things. Um, so they're very they're they're very controlled and very sanitized in a way those images and and yeah they they put forward or they enforce that idea this thing is unsinkable this this structure is human ingenuity overcoming nature that's that's actually the essential message i think of a lot of those images and can you talk about the album that one of the men's mothers put to, put together yeah. And, yeah and how that affected you yeah well i i think um priscilla boucher so david boucher's mother after he died, she was, I guess, cleaning up his belongings and found a camera with an undeveloped roll of film in it. And so got those photographs developed. And um, I just you know, read her talking in interviews about how part of, it was really hard for her to make that album, but, but it was also a, a really necessary process for her as well. And in, in the album, she has uh, her son's photographs juxtaposed with you know, postcards he'd sent his parents, pictures of him when he was a baby, um, family photographs. And it's, it's quite jarring and really disconcerting in a way. You'll have a photograph that, that David Bouch took of, you know, people doing work on the rig, and then you'll have a photograph of him in, in you know, dressed up as a baby in, 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 his, in his baby clothes. So this, this, this really stark contrast there, and it just has this amazing effect of, of you know humanizing rigs and, and you know making these are people with lives these are people with uh, with stories which is in direct juxtaposition for example yeah. of a a <clears throat> industrial image taken from yeah. above of all the machinery yeah. of what is essentially a very industrialized yeah. mega lump of metal and and yeah. at the same time quite vulnerable as yes. it turns out. Yes, that's right. And in fact, there was one particular corporate image of the Ocean Ranger that I talk about in the article that was, was everywhere. It was in the Ports building. It was, you know, sort of this in the in Otico's um, offices. And it absolutely was that picture of the Ocean Ranger looking absolutely unsinkable. And uh, one of the other things that Priscilla Boucher did is she has a copy of that, that photograph and she'd superimposed a picture of her son on that photograph again that's sort of reclaiming and resituating and uh and you write yeah. that she holds it quite close to her yeah there's a picture of her in i think it's in the western star newspaper on one of the anniversaries of the sinking of the ocean ranger and she's sort of holding holding this photograph and just the way that image travels is really fascinating i think so just like those images of of the the rivers in Tasmania, which mm. were in a wilderness area, yeah. these images are incredibly intimate and mm. just demand that people see the humanity in yeah. it, it, that was lost when the rig sank. Yeah. Yeah. And in that way, I guess they're incredibly radical images. Yes, I think in that sense they are, and it's just so wonderful that that Lloyd Major and um, Priscilla Boucher and Lance Butler donated those. And uh, Priscilla Boucher has also talked in interviews about how she kind of realized that this was history. Like she'd been making this album for her own sort of personal reasons. And then 
you know, got to a point where, okay, this is actually part of, of history. It's not just my family's story here and decided to, to donate the album. Which is incredibly generous. Incredibly generous, And, yes. you know, we, we all have to be thankful for that kind of generosity yeah. because it's yeah. a very personal, intimate thing to, yeah. to share yes. and it enriches us all. Yes, yes. Um, can we talk just a little bit about this book, uh, Fiona? This is called After Oil, mm -hmm. and you were involved with a group that uh, met for a couple of days, academics from all across Canada? And Europe, yeah, all over and the Europe. place, and North America, all over the place, yeah. And you're, you've since become involved with the Petrocultures group, and of course, Petrocultures is... It, well, <laughs> backtrack a little bit. Um, I have the, the story of all this kind of goes back, I guess, to around 20, 2012 or so, when I started wondering about why weren't we seeing images of oil in Newfoundland when it was changing the, the whole economy so radically and you know suddenly house prices had doubled. Everybody's lives were being affected by this thing, but we weren't really thinking about it. And I had a conversation with my colleague, Janine Farquharson, and we decided we'd start doing some work on this. And one of the early things we did is we invited uh, Imra Zeman, who's a He's now at the University of Waterloo, but then was at the University of Alberta, and was he's been instrumental in starting really this new field of energy humanities. And we kind of accidentally got in on the ground floor <laughs> of this field, and for, he formed this thing, the Petrocultures Research Group, with uh, his colleague Sheena Wilson, and out of that grew this project after oil. And yeah, that's a very long-winded way of getting no. to getting around to the book. But that that particular book, so I don't know, there's a huge number of us listed in the front of it. This is by, it was a totally yeah. collective effort. But but so yeah. you guys met for yeah. a period of time, like just, just a, a couple of days, and in in Edmonton, maybe I meant, uh, maybe it was like three or four days, but not long. Um, put it together. Yeah, so they divided us into groups and we each had an issue to look at and we'd, we'd had readings to, to think about before we got into those groups and then we just talked. In these, within these sort of groups we talked and we, and we started writing and we each were told, okay, you have to come up with something at the end of this and at the beginning we were all like, oh, that's ridiculous. What do they, what do they think? But, you know, they, they'd paid for us to go there so we better do this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, yeah, this book came out of it which is a, quite a wonderful and Amazing thing, and it was yeah. it was available and is available. Um, it's open access. It's, open access yeah. online. People can get this, yeah. and the reason I you know want to talk about it partly is because I think it's going to be exciting for students to realize. Well, anybody really is exciting for me yeah. that you know people who are scholars aren't just working alone, but they can actually get in a room and really pound yeah. out ideas and re do it through discussion and, and do it collaboratively. Yeah, yeah and I think uh, that's one thing I really love about the energy humanities area. It has to be interdisciplinary because the problems, the energy issues that we're dealing with that just bring in so many different aspects of social things, engineering things. It's just, it's so wide and broad and you can't actually tackle those questions on your own. They have to be collaborative things. Yeah, and I, I was at, at one of these conferences yeah. in Glasgow and you talked there about decommissioned oil rigs. And again, mm -hmm. you were talking about images because you were talking mm -hmm. about... Right, the rigs to... Well, I talked about a, diff, a few bunch of different things, but I'm just realizing now, I mean, it looks like my work's kind of gone all over the place, but actually I'm realizing this straight through it all. But the islands Absolutely. thing is really coming back to, to me now and thinking about the rigs as islands and thinking about what happens in 
in decommissioning, are these things going to stay there? Are they not going to stay there? And there are debates going on in different parts of the world about what to do with offshore infrastructure. And we haven't had those debates at all in Newfoundland. So, like, there's really no discussion about that. And we need to have those conversations. Right, because these are great, huge massive chunks of Absolutely metal massive. and yeah. and pollution when they're not being used. And who is responsible for them? Yeah, yeah. And, and who's going to pay for taking them away or you know, you know doing whatever needs to be done or has decided should be should be done with them at the end and so in uh, the Gulf of Mexico that for a long time there they've had a rigs to reefs program and it's a very interesting conundrum because rigs are in place for a long time and over that time ecosystems kind of build up yeah. around them and um, often Fishermen, like in the Gulf, will go deliberately go around rigs because there'll there'll be big communities of of uh, different fish species living there. So some people have made some amazing videos and photographs of some of these incredible underwater environments in the Gulf. And there's discussions going on in Europe now about, okay, so should we be considering this or not? And on one hand, it it sort of lets oil companies off the hook in a way, and it makes them able to say well, look, we're actually contributing to this beautiful natural thing that, that mm -hmm. happens. But on the other hand, it's true that we are in the Anthropocene. We're in this moment now where the human and the natural are so entangled. How do we deal with that? And ripping, ripping these things out of place might not be the simple answer either. Right. Yeah. Like taking out a rotten tooth. It yeah. hurts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Fiona, uh, you know, you and I had a conversation um, about um, the role of academia and and in activism. And I think everybody and many of the people we've had on the show are talking about the moment of crisis we're in with um, um, the environment and climate mm. change. And so... I wanted you to just talk a little bit about ICER books and what you hope to do with it. You're, you're the editor and where it's going and how it excites you. Oh, okay. I wasn't expecting the question to go in, in that direction. I'll talk about the activism thing a little bit and then I'll, and then I'll talk about the, okay. the ICER books thing maybe. But um, I, think, I think more and more of us are, are realizing that we can't be separated in the academy. It doesn't work anymore as an ivory tower. And I'm not claiming that I'm some fantastic activist because I'm not. I mean, you're doing a way better job of that than I am. Than I am on Muskrat Falls Conference and all those things. But I mean, part of our role is to think about stuff. And there's so much we really need to be thinking about at the moment. We have these issues that are really pressing and there's a really important role for academia and the humanities and social sciences in particular to play in those. We need to think about, and this is what's happening in the After Oil book, what kind of society do we want to have? Okay, we, we, we're going to wreck the planet if we keep going the way that we are. So what should it look like? What, what, what do we want it to be like? So we need to think about that stuff. Eyes of books. Yeah. <laughs> Eyes of books. Um, I was really lucky to, 18 months ago, take on the role of um, academic editor there. And that means that part of what I do is talk to people about possible projects and help them bring book projects together and go through the peer review process and, and all of that. And it's very exciting and very interesting. And we've got all sorts of great things going on. And 
and yeah, publishing is obviously one of the key ways to get ideas out there. And we're trying to think about new ways to do that. And we're at the moment wanting to launch a mini-graph kind of series, which is sort of in between a, the sort of standard monographs and, and, and articles. Big and little things. and all sizes. Yeah, and, to, and, and that's a great way to get things out more quickly. I mean, we, we have, what, 12 years to stop climate change. <laughs> we need to be talking about things fast. Is this, is this a monograph? Uh, yeah, it's in between. It's in okay. between. It's, what would that be? A mini mono, <laughs> a mini <laughs> monograph. <laughs> Fiona, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, you're a thrilling scholar. You really oh, are. And it's a, it was great to be able to speak with you. you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, we're almost done for today. I just want to say that uh, our next State of the Arts, um, what we're really hoping for uh, although she doesn't know it yet, is that we'll get Shannon Hoff from, uh, from uh, Philosophy, who is going to be having a big conference on philosophy and decolonizing and feminism. And uh, if, if I can figure out a way to, <laughs> to grab her uh, and get her on the show, then that's what we're definitely going to do. Um, thank you so much, everyone, and thanks to everyone at CITL who makes this possible. And happy birthday to me! Yes, happy birthday to Lisa. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to State of the Arts. Visit us online at hss.mun.ca slash stateoftheartz for our latest videos and other enhanced content. All our videos can be found as a playlist on Memorial University's YouTube channel, and you can subscribe to our podcast by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or the App Store. State of the Arts is supported by Memorial's Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences and the Center for Innovation in Teaching and Learning. State of the Arts at Memorial Humanities and Social Sciences. Analysis whip smart and professorial smart. People talk about what they know best. Listen to Lisa as she brings them all together and we try to figure out how to live together better with fat stacks of research found to impress. So let's talk about the faculty of HSS.